Deuteronomy chapter 32. We didn't quite sneak out of the 32nd chapter last time. Uh, we'll see, Lord willing, I'd like to, uh, as we kind of go through our study tonight, see if we can finish up the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, we'll see how uh, time allows with that. But uh, we now come to sort of the, the, the latter stage uh, specifically of Moses' life. He's just given this song to the children of Israel. If you remember, God gave to Moses by the Spirit this a rather lengthy song he added to his resume on top of being a leader and a lawgiver, also a songwriter. And God gave him this song to really convey some spiritual truths uh, to the generation and to teach them that song. And we talked about how no doubt God was doing that because he understands the power of music and how it is like uh, something of, of an adhesive in the inner part of someone's being and their mind and how we just somehow retain uh, melodies and songs. And so God said, look, Moses, you've spoken a lot, but give them the song. The, the theme of it, of course, above all else, was just about obedience to God, which has been the theme of this entire book. And having now wrapped up giving this song to them, uh, we read there in chapter 32, verse 48, after giving the song to the children of Israel, that then the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, saying to him, go up this mountain uh, of Abarim. And the idea there is the range of Abarim, uh, specifically on that mountain range, Mount Nebo on that range of Abarim, which is in the land of Moab on the eastern side, of course, uh, of the Jordan River across from Jericho. And he says, and view the land <clears throat> which I give to the children of Israel as a possession and die on the mountain which you ascend. And be gathered to your people, just as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hur and was gathered to his people, because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not hallow me in the midst of the children of Israel. Yet you shall see the land before you, though you shall not go there into the land which I am giving to the children of Israel. So you can't get more direct than that when God specifically says to you, Moses, climb up that hill and die right there. <laughs> I mean, it w wouldn't it be nice in some way if the Lord was that direct and specific in some sense that we had the calendar, the date, the time, the, the location? I mean, it's often been said before, you know, death is the one appointment, it seems, that you, you, you can't schedule yourself. You don't know the day and the hour of it, but it's the one appointment that you have to keep. Uh, and it's the one appointment that you can't be late for. You're going to be right on time for. Well, Moses sort of almost gets an exception here. God tells him specifically, he's been telling Moses that he's about to die, that he was to commission Joshua. We've seen that, that he would not be the one to take the children of Israel into the land. Moses is 120 years old at this point. And so Moses has been going through a, a sort of a phase of preparation as he recognizes uh, the era of his leadership is coming to a close, that Joshua would now take over the leadership mantle to lead the, the congregation of Israel. And now here that really comes down, uh, the funnel sort of narrows down to the very point of it here, the very day uh, that God says to him, Moses, I now want you to ascend up there on that mount, Mount Nebo. And he says, I I'm going to allow you to look at the land before you die. But he tells them specifically there in verse 50 uh, that he's about to die. And I like the way death is described there in some ways in verse 50, that he would be gathered to his people just as Aaron, his brother who had died earlier on Mount Hur, was gathered to his people. That's, that's a very good description of death, uh, th that death is not the cessation of existence. And a lot of people have a wrong idea about that. They just think, okay, well, that's what death is. When you die, it's just the cessation. It's the end of existence. That, that's it. Uh, when the Bible teaches the exact opposite, the Bible teaches that death is a transition of our existence, that we just transition out of this physical, temporal realm that we've lived in for however many years it may be, and we transition into an eternal dimension. We transition into the eternal realm uh, where we then find ourselves continuing to live forever, either being gathered to the people of God, if that's who we are, a child of God and a, uh, one who follows the Lord Jesus Christ, we're gathered to those people, or we are gathered to our people as an uncovered 
unconverted person, as an unsaved soul, and, and we will spend our time for all of eternity living and dwelling in a sense and an existence in the lake of fire, a place of torment and uh, eternal condemnation that the Bible speaks about where there's great suffering and torment forever and ever. But again, who we are in this life and, and what we decide to do with Jesus, the Bible tells us in this life, determines what happens then in the afterlife the the continuation and Moses of course as a as a believer as a follower of the Lord here is being told like Aaron his brother that when he dies just again somewhat beautiful the Bible says in the Psalms precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints and there is something very precious about the death of a believer because that is a time where in a sense they're freed from many times a very sick and earthly body and if not that still just from this sin sick fallen world and all of its struggles and trials and difficulties that we endure through and we are gathered if you are to our our larger family we're gathered to our our larger family our spiritual family who've gone on before us and are in the presence of the Lord so Moses is informed this is what's about to happen and God reminds him as if he hadn't heard it before <laughs> God reminds him once again there in verse 51 and 52 the reason he was going to die and not take them into the promised land but Joshua would he reminds him again in verse 51 it was because he had trespassed against the Lord among the children of Israel there at the waters of Meribah back in the wilderness when he did not hollow the Lord in the midst of the children of Israel. And of course, we have uh, seen this before in our prior studies and it's been brought up a few times to Moses as a reminder that basically he forfeited this privilege, this opportunity to lead the children of Israel into the promised land because of his error in leadership that he misrepresented the Lord remember the story we've talked about it before where the first time that God spoke to him God told him when the children of Israel were thirsty to strike the rock and when he struck the rock miraculously God brought water from the rock the second time around when there was great thirst and complaining Moses was told by the Lord on that occasion to just speak to the rock and that God would cause water to gush forth and, and Moses in his anger and his frustration, whatever it may be, took matters into his own hands and instead of speaking to the rock and representing the Lord properly, he let his anger and his emotions overtake him and took matters and he struck the rock again, you rebels. And God still brought forth water, but afterwards, remember God said, Moses, come here a minute. We need to talk about something. You just gave those people the indication that I'm angry. And, and, and that I want to punish or judge them. And Moses, that's not my heart and that's not who I am. Moses, you misrepresented me. And because he misrepresented the Lord and he marred a proper representation of the Lord as a leader, there was a pretty severe consequence attached to that. Uh, the consequence for Moses was that he lost this privilege and opportunity to lead them. Again, think of it too. Again, his, and this guy's whole life existence was navigating these people out of Egypt through the promise, or excuse me, through the wilderness and then he forfeits the opportunity. And again, I, I just can't help but to emphasize, and only because the Scripture, the Word of God, continues to keep bringing things up, uh, that apparently this is a point God wants us to be continuously reminded about, just like with Paul the Apostle. You read Paul the Apostle's conversion in the book of Acts. I'm going through Acts in my devotions right now. Three times Paul's conversion is recorded in the book of Acts. Now, why does the Holy Spirit need to basically almost verbatim three times give us the exact same conversion experience? Apparently, because God wants us to be very familiar with it, to understand the truths connected to it, and, and to have it be something that's deeply impressed upon us as far as the conversion that Paul experienced and, and all that's connected to that for our own lives. And again, here again, we're reminded it's a very serious thing to misrepresent the Lord. And all of us, not just leaders spiritually like Moses here, all of us to an extent represent the Lord. If you claim the name of Christ and call yourself a Christian, you represent Jesus. We are supposed to represent the Lord. We're supposed to be salt and light. And when we misrepresent the Lord, that's a various serious thing. It's a very grievous offense, and we need to recognize the, the seriousness of that and the severity of it if we should falter in that area. So God tells him here, Moses, you're going to see the land, but you're not going to go into the land 
which I'm giving to the children of Israel. A great reminder for us to make sure that we represent the Lord well, lest we suffer consequence in our own life. But chapter 33, keep in mind now, is what happens directly after Moses is told, today you should need to go up that mountain and you're going to die there and be gathered your people. It says, chapter 33, now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. Now, a couple things here I think very, very beautiful. First of all, take into consideration, Moses knows he's about to die. And think about Moses' experience with the congregation of Israel has not exactly been the most pleasant experience, right? I mean, would you say they gave him a little bit of agita throughout the the course of that wilderness wandering and everything else. And, and here Moses is about to die. And again, you know, as I've said before, you know, it seems like you know, the older we get in life, a lot of times we become just a lot more direct in our speech. We're not quite as concerned about you know, impressing people or whether people like what we say or not like what we say. And there's a part of that I think attached to just age and maturity and we don't struggle as much with acceptance and this and that. And there's another part of that that we realize I'm going to die soon, I don't care. Right? I mean, there's just a, there is a part of that, I think. And here's Moses. He realizes today, go up that mountain and die. And it's interesting to me that it says that Moses' last words before he goes up the mountain and dies with these people isn't that, doesn't, if I was writing this, or it, I was Moses, which you should be glad I'm not, and especially that I'm not, never God, <laughs> I probably would say something like, now, now Moses blasted the people. <laughs> Because he was so bitter and frustrated with all the agit and you know the, you ungrateful, discontent people, and I know you're going to rebel anyway. It doesn't say that he's not bitter. He's not bitter because of his own disappointment that what he wanted God didn't allow in his life. And again, something he greatly desired, God said, no. Moses isn't bitter over that. He relinquishes the sovereignty of God as something that rules over his life. And he's not bitter. He's not venomous. He's not angry. He, instead, what, he isn't thinking about himself and wallowing in self-pity because of his own disappointment. He could have been doing all those things. But instead, what is he thinking about? Other people. And how can I bless them just before I die? The last thing he wants to do is just bless people. The last thing he's thinking about others and he's not thinking about himself to his dying breath. He's saying, how can I bless these people? And the spirit of God comes upon him and it says that he pronounces this blessing upon the people. In fact, I almost wonder there in verse one, if that's why the Holy Spirit refers to Moses here as Moses, the man of God. You know, I think that's a great connection. A man of God and he blessed the people. I think that's what a man of God ought to do. I think that's what a woman of God ought to do. A man of God should be someone who's seeking to bless people, looking for ways to speak blessing into their lives, to do things to bless others, because that's what God's like, isn't he? God's a God who blesses people, and he likes to bless people. And so here, Moses represents the Lord well as a man of God. He speaks now, almost prophetically, if you would, this blessing over the congregation of Israel, the different tribals, uh, people groups. Uh, and this was a very fitting thing culturally because typically this was a very common thing done by a father before he died. It was, it was, again, predominantly a patriarchal society. And typically, just like back in the book of Genesis, chapter 49, remember when Jacob was about to die, he gathered his sons that would become the 12 tribes of Israel around him, Reuben and Simeon and Levi and you know Zebulun and Gad, and, and he brought all his, his sons around him. And, and there in chapter 49, Jacob, before he died, he pronounced over them as a father, sort of prophetically before he died, this blessing, there were a few curses attached to it as well, but he sort of prophesied over his children under the spirit of the Lord's direction to sort of do that. Well, Moses does this here, but Moses does nothing but bless the people. He doesn't really say much negative at all. And now he does this not just for individuals as Jacob did, but in many ways, he was kind of like a spiritual father to the nation as a spiritual leader. So he, like a father in a small family with the greater family, he now pronounces a blessing over each tribal group according to what God was putting upon his heart. So again, the language here, a lot of it is poetic. I'll be very honest. Some of the Hebrew terms and the construction here is very kind of, you know, complicated. Sometimes it's almost hard to fully grasp. I'm sure what he was saying directly to them 
had very clear meaning and significance because of the relational dynamics and and what the Spirit of God was revealing. But some of the terms and verbiage are, are a little bit challenging to understand, but the heart behind it is what we'll try and grasp as we go through it as he now speaks. And again, this very rather again somewhat poetic, beautiful language but he's prophesying a blessing over them. He begins in verse 2 by saying, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Mount Seir and shone from Mount Paran. He came with ten thousands of his saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. So notice, as a part of blessing the people, before he talks about them, the first thing he does is he just exalts God in their view and in their perspective he starts in these first couple verses here down to about verse 5 just lifting up and exalting the name of the Lord and you know there's no better way to be blessed than to have your focus off of yourself and on the Lord so Moses says look before I prophesy a blessing over you I just want to bless the name of the Lord because that that's what will bless you the most if you have your focus where it ought to be and he speaks of the wonderful works of God how God came to them and met them and how he refers to that incredible experience of how God gave to the people of Israel the law for them there in verse 2 how from his right hand he says came a fiery law now referring to that instance that took place on Sinai it's interesting he references in verse 2 how the Lord came it says with ten thousands of his saints now the term that's used there in the Hebrew saints is a lot of other places used as a reference to angels or angelic spirits. And more than likely what Moses is referring to there is how somehow there was an angelic accompaniment in this incredible experience there on Sinai as he was receiving the law from God for the people that he gave to them, how somehow God did this in the midst of the accompaniment or the connection with many thousands upon thousands of angelic spirits as a part of this incredible experience that went on. Uh, if you read Acts chapter 7 and Galatians chapter 3, there are references even in the New Testament how angels were somehow connected to the giving or the, the distribution of the law. So it's very likely that's what Moses is referring to there. Verse 3, he goes on to say about the Lord, Yes, he loves the people. All his saints are in your hand. They sit down at your feet... Everyone receives your word. So again, just I love that statement there in verse 3 at the very beginning regarding the Lord. He says, yes, he loves the people. And that, that is just, it's so simplistic, but there's something so profound. Again, consider the people that God loved. What was Israel like? I mean, rebellious and, you know, com you know, contentious and complaining about everything. I mean, you want to talk about, in some senses, the ancient version of the modern day entitlement attitude of our culture. This is what Israel is. I mean, they complained about everything through the wilderness and everything God gave for them. Instead of being grateful for it, they, why, well, it was better back in Egypt. And I mean, it just was constant chronic complaining and occasions where they would rebel against God and they would turn to idolatry and make the golden calf and all these kind of different things. And if there was one thing, and I know this almost sounds strange to say uh, in communication, it's almost like you could say, if there's one thing you could fault God for is that he loved the people. I mean, he just, he just loved the people. And because he loved the people so much, no matter what they did or how they behaved, he just kept loving them. And his love towards them never changed. And I don't know about you, aren't you thankful that God's love is unconditional that, it, that it's not based on our performance, that God loves people, that he just loves the people. And his enduring love is, is, is really the, the basis of how he always relates to us, not our performance or our behavior, our good days or bad days, our attitude or bad attitude, but, but he just loves the people. And it's so great to remember that. That's, of course, why Jesus made the incredible declaration he did in John chapter 3 when he said, for God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And, and this is what Moses certainly, again, keep in mind, these are some of his last words and he just realized above everything. You know what I, Moses sensed? He sensed, wow, God loves the people. Wow, the Lord loves people. And I think the more we grow, uh, what a great area that we should come to have a better understanding about 
is how much love God has for people. That he has a tremendous love for people and he responds in regards to that. He says there how the people sit at the feet of the Lord and receive his words. And boy, that's a great thing to do like Mary in the New Testament to be somebody who sits at the feet of the Lord, receives his words, drinks in what he wants to say. He says, verse four, Moses commanded a law for us, a heritage of the congregation of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshuron. We saw that name last week and talked about it. That's just a term there that speaks of upright ones or righteous ones and how God was noticed the king. And it's a reference to uh, Jacob or the nation of Israel. It was a sort of a term of endearment that God gave to them. When the leaders of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. And again, notice verse 5. Jeshurun is a, a, a term referencing Israel. Uh, and it says that God was their king. This was how they operated. They were a theocracy. They were a people who were ruled over by God. They, uh, unlike other nations and tribal groups, they didn't have... You know, a, a king. It's not till later on that they'll want to be like the other nations and they'll ask, in a sense, for a earthly human king. God was their king, and because of that, they were blessed in many ways until they rejected the leadership of God and longed for the leadership of an imperfect man instead, which began then the digression and ultimately the, uh, the downfall of any nation, of course, as they turn away from God's rulership directly over them as a people group. He now begins to pronounce these blessings on each of the tribes, beginning with, of course, the firstborn, Reuben. Verse 6, let Reuben live and not die, nor let his men be few. So the idea here is, is pronouncing a, a, a blessing. The idea here is, is sort of, it's another way of saying, long live Reuben. <laughs> may he prosper, may he succeed, may his numbers not be diminished. Uh, may he not through death lose more than he gains. Let Reuben live. May he flourish and prosper. The idea there is. Now, interesting that the next name you might expect to see would be Simeon. But you'll notice in this list here of this blessing that was prophesied by Moses over the 12 tribes, for some reason, Simeon's name is omitted here. The reason why? I have absolutely no idea. I don't know. Uh, it could be that because Simeon ultimately we know in the book of uh, Judges Simeon in some ways ends up in some ways sort of being absorbed by Judah in the territory geographically they're in uh, that could be an explanation that's about the best stab I can take at it but, Ju but for some reason here Simeon is not mentioned though all the other uh, tribal groups and leaders are so the next tribe he goes to then verse 7 is to Judah and this he said to Judah prophesying a blessing hear Lord the voice of Judah and again interesting hear Lord the voice of Judah we've said before what does Judah mean the word Judah means praise how beautiful you think about it hear Lord the voice of praise I think that's a certainly the voice the Lord wants to hear from his people and bring him Judah to his people let his hands be sufficient for him and may you be a help against his enemies. So he prays that Judah would experience success. They typically would lead the people out in military endeavors. Uh, the tribe of Judah would. So may, may the work of his hands, may he be sufficient and succeed in what he does in his works. And he says, and Lord, may you be a help against his enemies that God would give him the strength and grace as he would deal with enemies and what a wonderful thing how often the Lord does that for each of us he's our help when we face our enemies verse 80 then speaks of Levi and of Levi he said let your Thummim and your Urim be with your holy one perhaps a reference to one of the priests or maybe even to uh, the high priest Aaron or Moses himself, they were all from the tribe of Levi, remember. And remember, the Thummim and the Urim were, we believe, we're not 100% certain, these perhaps white and black stones that were used at one point in time historically to sort of discern the will of God, where they would keep these stones in, in a pouch in the uh, high priest's breast, uh, sort of uh, 
plate behind there and would seek to discern the will of God by asking questions and then reaching in and believing that God would then superintend over which stone was grabbed, the white or the black. And again, we're not certain, but it seems it was used in this way for a time period. He says, so let your Thummim and your Urim be with your Holy One, whom you tested at Masa and whom you contended at the waters of Meribah. And remember, this was what Moses dealt with there at the waters of Meribah. He says, verse 9, who says of his father and his mother, I have not seen them, nor did he acknowledge his brothers or known his children, know his children, for they have observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and a whole burnt sacrifice on your altar. Bless his substance, Lord, and accept the work of his hands. Strike the loins of those who would rise against him and of those who hate him that they may not rise again. So notice the blessing that's pronounced over Levi here is in direct connection to the calling specifically of the tribe of Levi. As we've said before, the tribe of Levi, remember, were those who God selected out of the 12 tribes to be the tribe of ministers and high priests among the people. They took care of the the tabernacle and and the house of worship. The, The priestly line came out of the tribe of Levi. So these were their responsibilities as the spiritual leaders and ministers among the congregation of Israel. So God here directs Moses to pronounce a blessing and direct connection uh, to their ministry, specifically in what their roles were, that they would, verse 10, it says, be those who would teach Jacob judgments and teach Israel the law. This was what their calling was. They had the blessing and the privilege of being the teachers of the word of God, of the law of God to the people. They, they took care of managing the incense and the sacrifices that were offered upon the altar, their uh, duties in, in responsibility to the tabernacle, and then ultimately the temple as the people came to worship. It's interesting, verse 9, there's this reference there. To, it's rather obscure in, in the New King James Version when it says uh, that Levi says uh, of his father and mother, he said, I have not seen them. The language indicates I have not regarded or exalted them uh, in my view, nor did he acknowledge his brothers or know his children. It says, but in contrast, they observed or lifted up in their eyes your word and kept your covenant. Another translation renders verse 9 this way. I think it's more clear. The Levites obeyed your word and guarded your covenant. They were more loyal to you, referring to God, than to their parents, relatives, and children. And probably what that's a reference to there is how back in Exodus 32, when the whole golden calf incident, remember, unfolded, And at that point, when Moses came down from the mountain and people were not restraining themselves, they're still going forward, even when he rebuked them, God said, choose this day who is on the Lord's side. And you remember who rallied to Moses' side. It was the tribe of Levi, who then, as God's representatives, executed and put to death to stop the rebellion against the Lord with the golden calf incident. And perhaps what's being referred to there is is what is described, how they were more faithful to God and more loyal to his word and his covenant than they were willing to be loyal to their own immediate biological family, their parents, their own children, their relatives. And I'll tell you, that's a difficult thing to do. But I'll tell you this, that's a part of being in the ministry is that you need to have a higher regard for God's approval than anyone else's approval. And you need to have a higher regard for obeying the word of God and upholding the word of God than having the approval, the acceptance, or making happy anyone else. Because there comes time where those things come into conflict. And you have to choose. Are you going to be more loyal to the Lord or are you going to maintain your loyalty to a relative, to have your parents' approval or, or to make your children happy or, or even people in the body of Christ, you know, because there are times sometimes you have to say something hard. You have to say something that's not real, you know, palatable to someone if you're going to uphold the word of God and you're going to honor the Lord over honoring other people. And the tribe of Levi did this as a part of their teaching and their maintaining the sacrifices. So here, because of their ministry and their calling, and the, again, the weight that, that that brings upon it with the sacrifice of that kind of service unto the Lord and to people, 
That's probably why in verse 11, uh, there's this blessing pronounced for these ministers. Bless his substance, Lord. Accept the work of his hands. And Lord, when people rise up against him, he says, protect him, strike the loins of those who rise against him and hate him, defend him against those who would attack him. Uh, because of his stand at times for the things of God. Verse 12 of Benjamin, he said, the beloved of the Lord shall dwell safety by him who shelters him all the day long and he shall dwell between his shoulders. So uh, Benjamin is referred to there in verse 12 as the beloved of the Lord. That's a beautiful name for for someone and Benjamin remember was the sort of one of the, the favorite sons the youngest son uh, among Israel and here referred to as the beloved of the Lord and he says the beloved of the Lord will be able to dwell in safety by him that's where our safety is our safety is staying by the Lord that, that that's what keeps us safe as long as we keep ourselves Jude says in the love of God we're we're in a safe place it's when we we step outside of that then we make ourselves vulnerable to dangerous things. Our job is simply to stay close to the Lord relationally, keep ourselves in the love of the Lord. This is beautiful poetic language here. It says, he shall dwell between his shoulders. The, the picture there, and this is probably what this could be a reference to, is like a father or a grandfather taking their small uh, child or grandchild and putting them up on their shoulders as kind of just a way of, you know, uh, and, and kids love that, right? They love that vantage point and there's something very intimate about, you know, they carry you on, your sh on my shoulders and it's a big deal to get up there and it's kind of just a, a bonding thing. And here, this is the picture here, like God taking someone that he loves intimately and just putting them on his shoulders and there you go, you, you're, you're safe up there. I'll carry you around. Don't be afraid of all the other people. Here. Just get up here on Poppy's shoulders and, and you're safe here. And, and this is the picture here of the Lord in a loving way providing safety and security to, to Benjamin as they would need it. Verse 13 here, we have a reference to Joseph, remember, who really is the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh combined. Blessed of the Lord is his land with the precious things of heaven, with the dew and the deep lying beneath, with the precious fruits of the sun, with the precious produce of the months. So this just speaks of pronouncing blessing on his crops and, and, and the weather upon the fertility of what would be produced from the, uh, produced from the fields. With the best things of the ancient mountains, with the precious things of the everlasting hills, with the precious things of uh, the earth and its fullness and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. Again, the idea is praying for the favor of God to be upon everything that he would plant and produce in their fields. Let the blessing come on the head of Joseph. Well, I like a little bit of that, wouldn't you? God's blessing on my head. That sounds wonderful. And on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. We remember that from Genesis. His glory is like a firstborn bull and his horns like the horns of a wild ox. That both speaks there of animals that were much stronger they excelled in strength and typically conquered other animals that's the imagery there the firstborn bull and like a wild ox with horns together with them he shall push the peoples to the ends of the earth and they are the thou ten thousands of Ephraim and they are the thousands of Manasseh so again remember it was those two half tribes the sons of Joseph Ephraim and Manasseh that are being referenced there. Verse 18, to Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar in your tents. So two tribes sort of joined here, Zebulun and Issachar, and he refers to their going out and their being in their tents. Going out's a picture of their you know, work or their commerce, traveling on ships and so forth as merchants. Being in their tents speaks of their home life when they're at rest. And he says, They shall call the people's to the mountains there they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness for they shall partake of the abundance of the seas and of the treasures hidden in the sand now we do know that geographically Issachar and Zebulun end up being located when they get into the land around the area of the seas around the Sea of Galilee 
around the Mediterranean Sea, and it seems that they became sort of uh, you know, merchant traders that they did business on the seas and here the, the pronunciation of a blessing upon their activity that they would experience abundance on the seas as they went traveling as traders and went out on ships and also at home would experience treasures hidden in the sand. Verse 20, to Gad he said, blessed is he who enlarges Gad. He dwells as a lion and tears the arm of the crown of his head. He provided the first part for himself because a lawgiver's portion was reserved there and he came with the heads of the people. He administered the justice of the Lord and his judgments with Israel. Now, verse 21 there seems to be referring to how Gad, remember the, the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh chose to dwell on the eastern side of the promised land and not go in. But remember, their obligation was, is, listen, if you're going to choose to stay here, then you can't be exempt from the battles with your brothers when they go into the land. You need to show up and do what is just and right, and you're going to have to come in and fight the battles until all the land is conquered, and then you can have freedom to go back and live where you want. And it seems here this prophetic word is given of how the tribe of Gad would be faithful to do this very thing how when the heads of the people came together and that they came together and they administered the justice of the Lord and his judgments and that they did engage in the battle they were faithful to follow through uh, and when you read Je uh, Joshua chapter 4 and so forth in those areas you see that Gad certainly honored their commitments they didn't shrink back from their word but followed through and helped in the military battles and conquest. Verse 22 of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's whelp. The idea there is a lion's cub is what's referred to. And he shall leap from Bashan. Of Naphtali, he said, O Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, possess the west and the south geographically. Again, great terms there that Naphtali, he prays over them prophetically that they would be satisfied with God's favor. And man, I, I have that term underlined in my Bible there, and full of the blessing of the Lord. I mean, I, I'll, I'll take uh, you know a thimble of the blessing of the Lord. But to be full of the blessing of the Lord, I mean, that's a wonderful thing here. I mean, just praying over them that they would experience satisfaction of the favor of God being upon them. They'd find contentment in God's favor upon their life and just be full of the blessing of the Lord. You know how much there's this, you see how much there's this continuous reference to the Lord's blessing, the Lord's blessing. And again, who is inspiring Moses to do this? The Lord. By the Spirit of the Lord, he's pronouncing this blessing. So we begin to get the indication that God wants to bless his people, that this is the heart of God, that he is a good father. And again, we have to always remember this just like Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, he says, how much more will the Heavenly Father give good things to those who ask? And again, that we would realize that if earthly human fathers who have a sinful bend and a, and a tendency towards evil and weakness have a heart of generosity, that they want to bless their children, they want to see their children happy not sad and miserable. They want to see their children experience enjoyment and succeed and do well and prosper. Listen, if that's our heart as earthly fathers, as human parents that are weak and imperfect, how much more a perfect heart of a heavenly father that's totally gracious, kind, benevolent, good, and loving in every way because he loves the people, how much more does God want that then towards us? That means that God wants you to succeed. God wants you to be blessed. It's not, there's nothing wrong with believing that. Something in our brain, because we're so performance-oriented, we live in a world where you don't perform, you don't get paid. You don't perform, you don't succeed. You don't achieve everybody else, you don't move forward. That we translate that over to relational experience with God and we forget God's not a boss. He's a father. He's a father. And it almost takes faith. I know for me, I'll be the first to admit, I was talking to the young adults about this very subject, actually, last Thursday night with our young adults meeting with Joseph and how God, it says the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And I said, one of the things that has been a struggle with me my, my whole life, just because of maybe my 
personality idiosyncrasies or the weakness of my own humanity, and especially in the earlier days of my, my Christian life, was just being able to be comfortable with believing God wants me to be blessed. God wants me to succeed. God, He, he desires, not, not because He wants me to, to prosper and be selfish, in a sense for self, but because He's a good God. That he wants that as a father and it's okay to believe that and to believe his goodness and to to be open to receiving his goodness and to recognize that is just his nature. That he wants us to be satisfied with his favor, full of the blessing of the Lord. Verse 24, let's move on. And to Asher he said, Asher is most blessed of sons. Again, there's our term, blessed. Let him be favored by his brothers. Let him dip his foot in oil. Now, to dip the foot in oil is a picture of extravagance. And that day they would wash the feet, remember, as a hospitality thing because they walked with sandals on dirty roads. So to have your feet washed was a, a real refreshing, hospitable thing. Uh, if you got a chance not just to have your feet washed, but to dip your foot in oil, that was an indication that you had an extravagant lifestyle. The idea is that you, your feet were washed and then you had enough wealth. The idea is, is oils, olive oil, that kind of thing, to kind of soften the skin on the feet. And as you get older, you know what that refers to, you know, the heel issues and so forth. Uh, this was extravagance that you, on top of having your feet washed, you had the extravagance of dipping your feet in olive oil and soaking them and so forth, massaging the oils in. So this, again, is a picture of extravagance and luxury. Your sandal shall be iron and bronze, and as your days, so shall your strength be. Again, there's another underline or phrase, verse 25, always been a favorite phrase in Scripture of mine. As your days, so shall your strength be. Some translations say that your strength shall be equal to your day. Boy, isn't that just a really good promise from God to hold on to, that a God who doesn't change, doesn't show partiality, says, whatever your day holds, there will be corresponding strength from God for whatever that day is. You know, I've always linked this to kind of the, the illustration of years ago when we weren't living here and living in Pennsylvania pastoring, we used to come down to the shore area for vacation. We'd get a house in Ocean City for a week and so forth. And we, and the kids were younger. We'd you know, take them up to the boardwalk and you get the, the, the a book of tickets for the rides. And I always held on to the ticket book. I didn't give them the ticket book. I'm the dad. I held on to the ticket book. And every time they wanted to get on a ride, they said, Dad, hey, can I get on this ride? And what's the question? How many tickets does that ride cost? Some rides were three tickets. Some rides were five tickets. Some were only one ticket. Some were like 12 tickets. You know, just ridiculous amount of tickets. But I gave them the exact amount of tickets they needed for that experience right before they went on it. And it's a perfect illustration of kind of how life works. Some days are kind of like one ticket days. Right? Then other days, you're going to be on like a three ticket ride. Some days are like five ticket rides. Some days are like 12 ticket rides. And, 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 but whatever your day is, the, the, the supernatural strength, the grace, the enablement, whatever you need for that day, God, in a sense, with his heavenly ticket book, he, and he says here, I know what this day holds, and your strength will be equal to your day. How wonderful to know that whatever you need, Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, that whatever your day holds, you don't have to be overwhelmed. There is adequate, sufficient strength, a measure of strength that matches perfectly for what that day is. So stop freaking out over your day. Realize there's strength available for that. Oh, a, yeah, I know. This is a five-ticket day. But God's got five tickets of strength for you. He's got five doses of strength to give you five times the strength you need that you didn't need on the one-ticket day. And for those 12-ticket days, or when the catastrophe happens, sometimes, right, we find ourselves thrust into a crisis. Some horrific thing happens, and we are just thinking, how in the world am I going to... Well, as is your day, so shall your strength be. God knows what you need for each day, and when that day arrives, and not the day before, He doesn't let you hold the ticket. He gives you just what you need on the day that you need it. And man, what a wonderful thing. Recall that promise to mind. Link it to your memory bank. As is your day, 
so shall your strength be from the Lord. Verse 26, there is no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to help you. Again, isn't a beautiful picture like God in a chariot riding the heavens to come help you? As is your day, remember, so shall your strength be. God sees you dealing with what you're doing and all of a sudden you're like, ooh, this is going to be a 12-ticket day. And so he, you know, he jumps on the chariot to come rushing across the heavens to come help you. All these people, know, but he comes and helps you individually with exactly what you need. He rushes to your aid and the excellency on the clouds. Verse 27, again, beautiful description, exalting God here at the end, Moses. The eternal God is your refuge, your safety, your hiding place. And underneath are the everlasting arms and he will thrust out the enemy from before you and will say, destroy. The idea is conquered, destroyed to your enemies. Again, isn't that a beautiful picture? The eternal God is your refuge. And then underneath of you are the everlasting arms. The everlasting arms. The Bible says that God measures the universe, everything that exists with his span. God measures everything that exists. And this says that God's everlasting arms are underneath you. Now, that speaks of two things. First of all, it speaks of support. When somebody's got you in their arms, they're supporting you. They're carrying you. They're holding you. God's everlasting arms are supporting you. He's going to hold you up and carry you through whatever you go through, whatever you're experiencing, his everlasting arms. But it also speaks of the fact of, of not only supporting you, but of catching you. Because if you haven't noticed, sometimes you're going to fall. You're going to slip. Whether you have a panic, freak out, anxiety, ah, and you slip and fall because you get so worked up over things, or whether you make a mistake, or whatever it may be. But here's the thing. You ultimately can't fall too far because ultimately God's arms are there and he'll catch you. Because the everlasting arms that never weaken are always going to be there, not only just to hold you up, but when you fall, the everlasting arms are there to catch you. What a wonderful assurance. Listen, do you know what that reminds us of? We don't have to freak out. We don't have to freak out over stuff. Oh, but I'm going to fall. No, you're not. Because underneath are the everlasting arms. Stop freaking out. I know it's scary when you fall, but God's going to catch you. And he's not going to drop you, right? People may sometimes. You watch these shows sometimes where, you know, you even... Well, I'm not going to go there. Let's, let's, let's move on. <laughs> That would have been a bad illustration in the flesh. Thank you, Lord, for helping me. Verse 28. Then Israel shall dwell in safety, the fountain of Jacob alone. I did have a funny story attached to that, but maybe I'll share it off record. In a land of grain and new wine, his heavens shall drop dew. Happy are you, O Israel. Who is like you? Moses says, a people saved by the Lord. And that is so true. Who is like the people of Israel? Saved by the Lord, set aside by the Lord, the shield of your help. Again, notice he calls God the shield of Israel's help. Pretty dumb when you battle against the nation of Israel. Because God's not only their God, he is their shield to help them in military conflicts. The sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you, he says, regarding Israel, and you shall tread down their high places. And that's because God is with them. Chapter 34, let's just finish up the narrative here. Don't panic, it won't be long. Then Moses went up from the plains of Nebo to Mount, uh, plains of Moab to Mount Nebo on the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord, as we read in our earlier text tonight, showed him then all the land of Gilead as far as Dan and all Naphtali in the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and all the land of Judah down south as far as the Western Sea, the Mediterranean the south, the plain of the valley of Jericho and the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. Now, so he takes him up and God begins to give him. This has to have been supernatural revelation for him to see this. There's no way the natural eye could see this far. But that's why it says there, verse 1, the Lord showed him all the land. And he just lets him see all the territory of this beautiful land since he's not going to take them in. And the Lord said to him, verse 4, This is the land, Moses, which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Now, again, here's the interesting thing. He didn't cross over then. 
read your New Testament in the Gospels, Jesus sneaks him in on the Mount of Transfiguration. So he gets a preview of coming attractions. Moses, discipline son, you're not going in the land. But God is so gracious. Even in discipline, he's still gracious. And later on the Mount of Transfiguration, who appears with Jesus there? Moses and Elijah. So guess what? God snuck him in. <laughs> Jesus got him in because the grace of Jesus Christ fixes every failure and restores things beautifully. So here he sees it and one day he actually gets to go in. Verse 5, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he, that's God, buried him in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. The idea is that no human being knows exactly the physical location of where Moses' grave is because it says God buried him personally. There was something very personal that happened. Jude 9 makes a little reference to this, how Michael the archangel and Satan were disputing on one occasion, Jude 9 refers, regarding the location of the body of Moses. And you almost may say, well, well that's interesting. Why, why, how come nobody knows where Moses' body is at? Why, why would God bury him and not let the people bury him? Well, perhaps because Moses was such an esteemed, critical leader. I'll tell you what people probably would have done. Bury Moses. Put up a shrine. Isn't that what people do? And so perhaps God in his wisdom said, look, these people are prone to idolatry. I'll bury him myself. I'll be the undertaker. I'll take care of all of it. <laughs> you know, he's going to heaven anyway. And so nobody knows where the body of Moses is at. And Moses, verse 7, was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. So God had kept him in great health. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days, which was beyond the typical Jewish mourning period. But again, this was a great man, their leader. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Now Joshua, verse 9, the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid hands on him, so the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So we now begin to see this transition over to the leadership of Joshua now, who, because of his commission, he's filled with the corresponding spirit of wisdom, how to lead these people and, and how to take over leadership and make a transition. That's a challenging thing to do. But the era of Moses is coming to a close as we're now going to begin the book of Joshua. Joshua now takes the mantle of leadership for the next season to lead the children of Israel Verse 10 says, but since there has not arisen in Israel a prophet, notice, like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants and in all his land, and by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of of Israel. Again, can I draw your attention to verse 10 before we close? Notice, there has not arisen in Israel, says a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew, beautiful language again, face to face. Face to face. That speaks of intimacy. When you're face to face with somebody, that's intimacy. You know, when you want to talk to your to your kids, you want their attention. You want FaceTime. We say in the, you know, maybe in the, in the uh, the business world, I, I don't want to do this email thing. Look, we need to have a FaceTime. We got to have an honest conversation. We need FaceTime here. It speaks of intimacy, direct connection, and it says that God knew Moses face to face. There was intimacy. There was a personal closeness in that relationship. And, and look. That is a beautiful thing because it pictures exactly what the Lord desires for all of us. That, that we would have this close, intimate relationship. And if Moses had that prior to Jesus, how much more is important is it that we have this? And that this be our primary focus, our face-to-face -face relationship with the Lord. And here's why. What's Moses doing? Dying. And you know why it's good to get to know God now? Face-to-face? Because guess what's going to happen when you die? You're going to be face to face with your Creator. You're going to be face to face with your Creator. So get in some face time now as much as possible. Look into His face. Get to know Him. Get to experience Him because that's ultimately your eternal destiny upon death like Moses. Amen?